0: Chapter 6 of Silly and Its Legends by Henry James Whitfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. St. Mary's No. 2. I went to day on a hunt for antiquities, and not only for antiquities, but for the natural beauties among which the relics of the past repose. Perhaps there does not exist a combination of what is stern and sublime in God's works and in the creations of man more perfect than the objects of my pilgrimage to-day. My guide was a lady whose knowledge of all that is interesting in these islands, and whose keen appreciation of their romantic grandeur, is as charming as it is unrivalled. On the outskirts of Hewtown, as elsewhere, you are struck by a peculiarity in the roofs. Wherever they are formed of straw, they are not made after the usual fashion, with large eaves, but are fastened down bodily by twisted bands which are secured firmly to pegs in the wall. This precaution is taken to prevent the thatch from being blown off by the wind. Every house has a porch with a side door to break the force of the gales which, if admitted in front, would be irresistible. Nearly all the windows also are screwed down, opening only a little at the top. The skeleton which, it is said, exists in every cupboard is here the visitation of periodical storms, of a violence hardly to be described. Yet the Salonian winter is not a winter, after all, frosty, but kindly, crowned with holly, and redolent of good cheer. But like the Indian summer in Canada, an intruder into a season not his own. The gales, indeed, blow heavily at Christmas, But the true scourge of Scilly is the east wind of March and April. This year it has raged for nearly three months, with a deadly effect hardly to be described. Still, it is curious how limited is its range. Vessels from the Atlantic have had a strong westerly breeze until they came close to land. Perhaps these opposing currents may account for the singular set of the stream round these rocks. It runs in a complete circle so that a vessel, which was wrecked here some time ago, was carried round the island for three days, and was then, by chance only, thrown upon a bank of sand. Reader's note footnote. I may as well here mention another trait of Salonian life. Adam Smith proved the existence of commerce in the way of barter, by the example in the Iliad, where a suit of brass armour was valued against a number of oxen. I can produce a more modern instance from my own experience. As there is here no great demand for meat, so the supply is limited and unvaried. To obtain a change of diet, being unable to buy, I was very glad to exchange a piece of beef for a calf's head. Reader's note, footnote ends. Ascending Buzza, or Bosso Hill, and visiting the site of the one remaining Barrow, or Burrow, Reader's Note, Footnote, Troutbeck says that this word is derived from the Saxon by to bury, we struck across the country by a path on the top of a wall, as is customary in Cornwall. Keeping to the southeast, we soon reached Old Town and looked at the ancient Kistvane, now built into the corner of a stable, and at Tolman Head, and examined a rock basin or two, of which I can only repeat my opinion that they are natural. We then descended to the Little Bay, the name of which, Port Minich, or Porth Menich, is believed to be a corruption of Porth Monach, especially as the adjoining khan is called Church Ledge. Reader's note, footnote, Monachorum, or Monks. Footnote ends. Crossing the fields that bound it, we came in sight of a wide down, Yellow with golden firs and studded with cairns and barrows, and huge grey stones. Before us on the right, high over the sea, was the giant's castle, and to it we bent our steps. The ground rises continually, and is covered with a kind of mossy turf, not level nor uniform, but worn in channels, and broken with innumerable rocks. Footnote, the irregularity was caused by the former habit of cutting turf, now happily prohibited. Footnote ends the fade compliment paid by the frenchman to his mistress when seated on a green madame le univerde le universe est de vous pides would by no means be applicable here the giant's castle is well worth a visit it is probably a danish stronghold and consists of three circles of entrenchments the inner one being the citadel round a ledge of rock to the right is a fine logan or logging stone i mounted to the top while my lady companion rocked it to and fro. We proceeded along the shelf of the cliff till we faced the great ocean, then tumbling and rolling wildly in and breaking in thunder upon the beach below. There was nothing between us and Newfoundland save the spirit of the vasty deep and the power of him who stilleth the raging of the waves. A large Indiaman, bringing the news of the loss of the Birkenhead steam frigate at the Cape, with nearly five hundred souls, went slowly by, with sails close-reefed, pitching heavily. Yet in this stormy spot a human being once found refuge from pursuit. On the other side of the promontory is a cave called Tom Butt's Bed, from a boy of that name who, to escape at once impressment and a cruel master, hid himself here. He was discovered by some boys, through whose aid he was supplied with food, and finally got on board a ship and found safety in flight. Below the castle is Porthelic Bay. The whole of the open ground is called Salaki Down. In 1840, a shipwreck occurred here, under circumstances probably unparalleled. A French vessel from Dunkirk was upset, and three men were kept alive in her hold, and so preserved. The ship drifted on the sands, and the voyagers were rescued by the aid of a fisherman who happened to be there. My companion saw the vessel. She told me the first thing done by the poor Frenchman on reaching land was to fall down upon their knees and return, thanks to God. At the corner of the bay is shown, truly or falsely, the grave in which, for a time, was interred the famous Sir Cloudsley Shovel. The account of his wreck is given in north. An air of romance has been thrown over his fate by the circumstances said to have preceded it. A sailor on board the flagship warned the admiral that he was sailing directly for the rocks of Scilly. The man, according to one account, was charged with endeavouring to excite a mutiny and was hung. According to another version he was punished and by a sort of poetical justice was the only person saved. He floated to a rock beyond called the Hellweathers and was got off the next day. The body of Sir Cloudsley was identified, though naked, by a diamond ring which he always wore. He was interred in the sand but taken up again and buried in Westminster Abbey. Tradition says that the grass never grew again upon his unblessed grave. About two thousand persons perished at the same time, among them were his stepson, Sir John Narborough, and Mr. Henry Trelawney, son of Bishop Trelawney, one of those committed to the tower by King James II, and of whom the memory is preserved by the old Cornish verse. And shall they slay, Trepole and pen, and shall Trelawney die, then forty thousand Cornish men shall know the reason why. There is a large pond of fresh water near the cove, and several druidical circles and barrows about it. As at Stonehenge, the neighbourhood of these circles seems to have been a favourite spot for interment. Many of these burying places have been opened, but I believe nothing has been found but black, greasy, strongly-smelling earth. Keeping parallel to the sea and crossing the downs, we arrived at what is called the Druid's Chair. The seat faces due east, and the Ark Druid is said to have seat in it to observe the rising of the sun. We must leave the truth of this story to internal evidence, for we can neither affirm nor contradict it. It is certainly a comfortable resting place, but scarcely an artificial one, for there are many just as good in different parts of the islands, and facing in all directions. Above it is a circle with barrows innumerable. I do not give the local designations of the many rocks and cairns, for they would convey no definite meaning to the reader, and he would find the list as tiresome on paper, as the reality is picturesque and sublime." This druid priesthood was a remarkable race. They taught to the common people a debased polytheism, but while to the vulgar, they told of Taranus, the thunderer, and Hisus, the god of war, and Belus, the sun, and on the ruler of the waves, their own creed, as is supposed to have been the case with the Egyptian initiated, was widely different. The pantheon of the priest had but one god, God the invisible. Reader's note, a poem begins... For there the druid never knelt before his own device to worship and adore, nor blindly deemed that human art could throne a god's bright presence in a form of stone. Oh no, he turned his philosophic eye to the broad ocean and the pathless sky, and from the mountain and the torrent caught that deep and stern sublimity of thought that loves to gaze on nature's shrine and see above, around, pervading deity." Reader's note there is a footnote The Druid's Cambridge Prize poem by J. S. Brockhurst. Poem ends. Like the saga, the faith of the Druid was the creation of the land from which he sprung. Grand, solitary, savage, it came home to the feelings in such scenes as these. Its rude sublimity impressed itself upon nature, and a thousand years have passed over but not eradicated it. The Khaldi has not left even the shadow of his worship. The Saxon gods are forgotten. Thor and Odin and Zernabok do not exist in a memory or a fragment. But through the length and breadth of the land, the Druid and his Hippothra, his rock-temples, that bear their bosoms to heaven, survive and seem immortal. There is nothing mean nor little nor common in that which defies time. Sit in the Druid's chair and look over that great ocean at the sun— so, perchance, did the priest, for whose worship those rings of stone and that channel to carry off the blood of the victim were made, perhaps twenty centuries ago. The mind that, in spite of error, stamped its impress upon such a space of time as that, was a master mind, a mind of such an order as, in Christendom, forms an apostle or a martyr, and, in a cause of beautiful deceit, a Mahomet or a Numa. We returned slowly over the down, pausing at times to observe cairns and tumuli. Through a narrow lane which passes a farmhouse boasting the name of London, we gained an excellent road that conducts the traveller to Hugh Town. On the right of the highway is a mass of rocks called the Cairn Friars, which is evidently a corruption of Cairn Friars or Cairn Prior. We have here, as in the neighbouring appellation of Holyvale, a proof of the existence of several religious communities. There is scarcely any tradition to preserve the tale of their existence. Perhaps some Friar John or Friar Roger performed their exploits worthy of Chaucer's clerks. Perhaps some anchorite dwelt in the clefts of the rocks, or peradventure the solitude was hallowed by the abode of many such, better than those whom Boccaccio has immortalised, and when they shuffled off their mortal coil, the monks of St. Nicholas said t'was ridiculous not to suppose every one was a saint." We retraced our steps to Hugh Town. the Spanish windmill on Buzzer Hill, gazed down curiously upon us at the end of the long vista formed by our road. This windmill was erected by the son of a person, who had been many years in our commissariat in Spain. I remember once in Italy seeing bolsina, mouldering, it was quietly said, over volcinium. The mill, already in appearance old, is going to decay over the dust of the ancient lords of the soil. It stands upon the funeral barrows of those, our departed ancestors, who at autumn fall bought the hallowed fire from the same druids, in whose sacred chair I had, perhaps, sate to-day. A little below it to the right was the tower of the church, beautiful in its simplicity. The mariner from Spain, whose vessel is wind-bound in the harbour, looks upon the memorial of his country and remembers the Via condios Dios that cheered him as he left his home." The Protestant sees in the fabric, rising to our eyes from the hillside, a bond of union and a memento of his common Christendom, a sign of that faith which is for the universe and for eternity, a shrine more pure than ever pagan trod, the Christian's temple to the Christian's God. End of chapter 6. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.